0: In the 1970s, four women were found dead in their apartments in London, Ontario. At first, pathologists determined they died of natural causes. But when three more women turned up dead, the community discovered something far more sinister at play. Listen to Dark Adaptation Podcast to hear how a deranged killer scaled buildings to enter their victims' bedrooms. From the darkest corners of the most haunted places in the world to the lesser-known cases in true crime, we take you on a journey through the twisted and bizarre. And for larger cases, our resident astrologist delves into the charts and skies of major events and people for a true crime podcast with a cosmic twist. Tune in every Monday to Dark Adaptation wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll catch you on the dark side. Hey guys, welcome back to the True Crime b Hello,
1: this is episode 32 and I am Beth. I'm Bailey. And today we're kind of pulling a dirty trick on you. We, yep. We both have sad stories today. <laughs> <laughs> because I was supposed to be the good guy, but mm-hmm. sometimes good guys do bad things and I'm doing a bad thing today. Bailey's still going to go first, uh-huh. but don't expect anything uplifting at the end of this.
0: <laughs> and if we do add something in, uplifting, happy surprise. There. That's right. Put it that way. That's right. Okay. All right. So what do you have today? Today I am back in America. <laughs> Hello, welcome home. Yeah, welcome back. We are going to first the West Coast, but then it's going to take place on the East Coast. <laughs> All
1: right, jet setter. Mm-hmm. So
0: I'll start you out with our main character of this story. His name is William Bradford Bishop, and he was born in Pasadena, California on August 1st, 1936. Okay. He was William Bradford Bishop Jr., so his father was William Bradford Bishop the first. And then his mother was named Lobelia. He, instead of going by William Bradford as his namesake, he decided to go by Brad, and that's how I'm going to refer to him for the rest of the story. He went to Yale University and ended up graduating in 1959, and that same year he married his high school sweetheart, who was named Annette Catherine Weiss. He decided to go into the U.S. Army, and in that he served as a counterintelligence
1: operative, I think they detect intelligence operations that are going on in the country. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to thwart foreign spies.
0: So he did that for a little while. And while doing that, he actually got stationed all over the world. So he was in Africa for a brief period. He worked in Italy for a brief period. He was all over the place. But then he came back to the United States when he and his wife decided to start having children.
1: Okay. Well, that's good if they're both in the same country. It makes it a lot easier to have yeah, children. yeah.
0: Yeah. So the two settled down on the east coast of America, and they had three sons together. They had Brenton, Jeffrey, and William. Mm-hmm. And then later on, his mother, Labelia moved in with them as well. Okay. They officially settled down and bought a house in Bethesda, Maryland, and he was working at this point as a foreign service officer for the state of Maryland. So we're going to kind of leave that at what it is. Okay. And that's just what we know about him. All right. Now, on March 2nd, 1976, in Columbia, North Carolina, park rangers were called to a fire that had been started in the middle of the woods. Okay. And so the park rangers rushed out there, they put out the fire as fast as they could because they just thought it was wildfire. Right. But upon further inspection, they quickly realized that this was not just a random bonfire that had gone wrong, this was a hand-dug grave with five bodies in it. Oh, no. In it. Oh,
2: God. Yes.
0: These five bodies consisted of two adult women and three male children.
1: Yeah, I knew that as soon as you said it.
0: Oh, God. They also found at the scene a shovel and a gas can and... Then they also discovered that the clothes, they must not have been burnt super badly because the clothes, they could see the labels. And they were from an upscale clothing store that did like specialty items. So these were handmade for them clothing. And they were from a store in Bethesda, Maryland, which was 200 miles north of Columbia where the bodies were found. Wow. They called the police in Maryland and asked, do you have five people missing from your state or specifically this town? And they said, no, we don't have anybody that's, come up for that strange and but we'll keep an eye out six days later the police in bethesda received a call from a concerned neighbor this neighbor who called shared a driveway with her neighbors a family of six and had not seen any of them for a week oh my god so the police came and they were just expecting it to be you know this family has gone on vacation didn't tell the neighbors so they came just for a typical oh everything looks fine ma'am but The officer that arrived, Lieutenant Joe Sargent, spoke with the caller and then decided to go knock on the front door. And after he got onto the porch, he saw little blood droplets Uh around and he opened the front door, which was unlocked, and found just mayhem, just blood everywhere. Like coating, yeah, big pools in the living room and then it went up the stairs into the bedrooms and everything. So he actually gave a quote, He said there was hardly a place you could put your hand where there wasn't blood spattering. Holy crap. Brutal. What a nightmare. They quickly noticed there were no bodies in the home. They put two and two together. These must be the bodies that were found out in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And that was confirmed with dental records. So they had no clue at this point whether Brad had done this or if he himself was a victim. Because he could have been kidnapped. He worked for the government. It's not unheard of. Right. So they started looking for him and even speaking to his co-workers at work to see if anybody had a bone to pick with him. And they spoke to a man named Roy who worked closely with them. Roy told them that March 1st, so the day before the bodies were found, Brad had been at work as usual. And the office had a yearly promotion they would give out to certain people. And he'd been expecting to get that. But then the promotion list came out and Brad found out once again he had been passed over for that and he was pissed off, furious, frustrated about this. And so he told his coworker, Roy, that's now talking to the police, that he was feeling sick and he was gonna go home. Roy also told the police that in the past, Brad had commented about how his mother and his wife had teamed up together to constantly tell him, you're not doing enough. I want you to be further promoted and stuff. And we don't know if that's actually true, if he's overplayed it. But also, he was kind of upset with his wife at the time because she had recently started going to the University of Maryland to get her own degree. She's 37. She finally wants to do something for herself. Yeah. And he wanted to go be stationed overseas again. Okay. for his job and she said because well he thinks
1: that's how he's going to get promoted if he right. goes back overseas again. and that's
0: the last time he remembers feeling successful in his
1: career so he blames his family that he's not getting this promotion and then he's blaming his family because they're nagging him about not getting the promotion yeah okay yeah but it's what a nightmare yeah
0: all of that kind of went cold they're still looking for brad march 18th a station wagon registered to him was found by park rangers in the great smoky mountains in tennessee They found dark stains in the backseat, which was found to be blood. They also found dog biscuits, a shotgun, bloody blankets, and his medication, which was oxazepam, which is a common anxiety medication. Maybe he should have taken more of that. Yeah. He took it with him, though. They tried to search the area of the Great Smoky Mountains where his car was found, and they had sniffer dogs and everything, but they couldn't find a scent anywhere, so it didn't seem like he left on foot at least. don't really know. And they officially put out a warrant for Brad after this. The police started digging even further into his activities after he had left work on March 1st. Mm -hmm. So they found that he had gone to his bank and withdrew several hundred dollars. He also stopped at a hardware store and then a gas station near home. At the hardware store, he bought gas cans, a shovel, and either a ball peen hammer or a sledgehammer. We're not sure which one. This was all proven by the receipts they found in the car. Okay. They also discovered, based on those receipts, he had either gotten home sometime around 7.30 or 8 because his last purchase and it took that long to get to the house. You know, you know what's
1: awful is I'm listening to you tell the story and I'm thinking in my head, don't do it. Don't do it. Like somehow, if I just so encourage him not to do it, somehow I can change the course of history.
0: And it's so premeditated. There were so many points where he could have just stopped and been yeah. like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like, yeah, stop.
1: If you're really that unhappy with your family, just leave. It's not
0: that serious. Yeah. Just, just leave.
1: Yeah, exactly. Sorry. I, just, I know. It
0: just fills you with dread just knowing. It makes you feel helpless. Mm-hmm. It's like you know what's going to happen and you just can't stop it. I'm just going to run down the basic event of what order things went down and yeah. then I'm not going to go any further because these are kids and I don't do that shit. Okay? Yeah,
1: we don't need to.
0: Based on the crime scene, they put together his series of events that occurred sometime after 8 o'clock. He came home. The children had already been put to bed at this point. His children were 5, 10, and 14. At this point, he seems to have stumbled upon his wife, Annette, who was 37, because it seems she was killed first because she was taken off guard. So she had been reading a book sitting in a chair in the living room, and he had attacked her from behind, it seems. And then he went upstairs, killed the children, and then it's believed his mother, Lobelia, was out on a walk walking their dog. And then she came home and found the scene.
1: Were all of them killed with the ball-peen hammer?
0: It was such chaos. They didn't find any shell casings, I will say that, in the house, but we don't know yeah. entirely. It seems like, yeah, with the hammer or the sledgehammer, whatever oh, it was.
1: Oh, my God. Brutal. How do you go to a little kindergarten kid?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Especially when they're sleeping. When they're sleeping, and they're so angelic when they're sleeping. <sighs> and Oh, holy God.
0: shit. But this actually, we're kind of nearing the end of this, because this mother... We never found him. He's just still gonna tell you, loose still on the loose. Holy crap. He was actually on the top ten America's Most Wanted list until like two thousand eighteen. Holy wow. At which point they moved him off to make room for people who could still be dangerous. At this point he's like almost eighty, you know. Yeah. Witnesses later did come forward to the police saying that they had seen him in North Carolina matching the license plate and everything in his car. So before he ditched it in Tennessee and he had stopped, purchased tennis shoes at a store and he had a dark skinned woman and his family dog with him. So that does match up. Yeah. I don't know who the woman would be.
1: So but. this was 1977, 76, 1976. So it was pretty easy to hop over borders in mm-hmm. 1976. Not
0: to mention he could be
1: anywhere in the world.
0: That's the thing. He has a government passport. Where he gets basically the fast pass through every single security line, he gets. Yeah. And they're not really tracking him because you know, trusted would be member.
1: Now, but I don't. I doubt they really yeah. had the capacity to do that back then. At the time, he but just wherever he as ends. a civilian, I have to renew my passport every ten years, mm-hmm. and if you're a child, it's every five. Yeah. So what about that passport? Would that would not eventually expire, or was that good for as long as he was supposedly? I until think, it was confiscated back by the government. I think
0: it, would, it does expire. I think they even cut it off once they were like, oh, no, but he's definitely the dude who did this. Once they realized he'd committed the crime, I think they put out a warrant and said, this is not valid anymore. Don't let this guy through the yeah. borders. But at this point, they believe he probably already did Yeah, cross he had over. already slipped through. Yeah. Wow. Just because the whole thing was so premeditated that it's oh, like, yeah. I and, mean, just and, go,
1: if he wanted to do that, he could have just done that and left his family.
0: Yeah, I don't know why they had to die. It doesn't make sense. In- because
1: he was an angry piece of shit who wanted to take his anger out on somebody. Mm-hmm. That's just out- that's just outrageous. I nothing. There's no reason that makes sense.
0: There's like no <laughs> reason <it's> just- <sighs>
1: that makes sense.
0: Yeah, but then again, nothing. Came about, except for two years later in 1978, his coworker that spoke to the police originally, Roy, was in Sorrento on business, which is a town in Italy, Mm -hmm. and saw Brad. He just happened upon him. He was washing his hands in the bus stop bathroom and Brad walks in and he stops and said, okay, that guy's kind of disheveled and his hair's grown out a little bit. He's scruffy now. But that's Brad. Like, I know my coworker I worked with every day for like 10 years, you know? So he turned to him and said, you're Brad. And the guy just said, oh, no, and ran. So Roy chased him out and lost him somewhere in Sorrento, Italy. And we have not seen anything from him since.
1: That's because he immediately left Sorrento. Yeah,
0: he's probably not in Italy any longer. Oh, my God. And he speaks so many languages. It really could be literally anywhere. Wow, that story
1: is terrible. Yeah.
0: I do want to... It's not a happy thing, but it's a super bummer. But in 2021, so just recently, a woman who had been adopted as a child did a DNA test and accidentally found out that she was William Bishop's biological daughter. And that has been confirmed by the FBI. They know for a fact she is, but it's not any clue as to where he was after the murder because she was born in 1958, but it's just, can you imagine?
1: Was she born in the US or was she somewhere yeah, else? Yeah, she's
0: born in North Carolina. So he must have just cheated on his
1: girlfriend. So he was a he was just bad all along.
0: Yeah. He was just a piece of shit.
1: Well, I have a lot of pieces of shit in my story too. Great. Let's go Hooray, ahead it's piece of shit day <laughs> at the B&B. Okay, sorry it's, about that, it's guys. B&B POS
0: day. <laughs> Woohoo! B&B POS. I like
1: that. <laughs> well, Brad, you rotten right hell wherever you are. This oh, one shoot. at least has an ending.
0: Okay, yeah, that's it's better. not a
1: happy ending, but it is an ending, and I am cheating a little bit today. Mm. It's right. old; it's from the turn of the 20th century, and it's scandalous. So I picked it anyway. Okay, sue me.
0: You know, it's a little rumor, a little gossip mill.
1: Yeah, we do this for free, so I can do what I want. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my architect mayhem stories. Okay, and it is a scandal and a murder. Even more so than Francis Rattenberry from episode 10, in case anybody's keeping score at home. Francis was pretty scandalous, but this one is extra super scandalous. Well,
0: Francis wasn't scandalous in his own. No. Everybody else was scandalous. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to also preface it by saying probably a lot of people have heard of this story, but I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about the people. Okay. Rather than just the one event that everybody knows about. So, to jump into this turn of the century murder scandal, we have to meet the main players. And since you know this is an architect mayhem, I'll start there. Mm-hmm. Stanford White was born November the 9th, 1853, in New York City into a family that was educated and connected, although they had no real substantial wealth, with his father being a critic of music and the theater, who was also a Shakespearean scholar. Stanford, being privy to his father's connections in the art world, was accepted at the age of 18 into an internship under Henry Hobson Richardson, whom any architect will tell you was a giant of his time. Since formal education was not required at the time, as long as architectural internship was sufficient, Hanford took advantage of his connections to also train with Julien Guadet of the École de Beaux-Arts in Paris. Mm -hmm. The Beaux-Arts was the predominant architectural style during a large part, but especially the second half of the 19th century. You can find examples of Beaux-Arts architecture being created into the 20th century. It was very flowery and sculptural it was informed by french neoclassicism and the baroque and the rococo which brought in very ornamental elements but it incorporated modern materials like iron and glass so it achieved a grandiose impressive building that was very grounded in skilled craftsmanship interesting and i will do an instagram post with pictures of some of these elements so that you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Stanford's Beaux-Arts training and artistic excellence led him to move onward to become the artistic leader of the architecture firm McKim, Mead, and White by the time he was 26 years old. McKim, Mead, and White ultimately was considered to be secondary only to Frank Lloyd Wright, and I know you know that name, Yep. when it came to importance to the identity and character of modern American architecture. And of course, we're leaving out a whole bunch, like Louis Sullivan and the whole Chicago-style But this episode's about Stanford White, so I'm just going to leave it there. Okay. By the time Stanford White was 26, which was in 1879, he had already begun achieving fame for his work. His work and design principles embodied what he called the American Renaissance. And I didn't write this down, but really what his goal was, that he wanted to produce these intricate, ornate, grandiose buildings where important things happened. Okay. That was kind of his goal. He wanted to be the guy who designed the huge building where all the stuff happened. So he wanted to go down in history, essentially. He did, basically. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make a name for himself. Okay. Okay. And over the next 25 years, Stanford designed such buildings and structures as the Triumphal Arch at Washington Square, the second Madison Square Garden, which was subsequently demolished in 1925, and replaced Mm -hmm. many churches, the Boston Public Library, numerous society clubhouses and yacht houses. He also designed many Long Island mansions that still stand. If you happen to watch The Gilded Age on HBO, it's based on kind of the same format as Downton Abbey, but it's located in New York. The house that was built for the nouveau riche Russell family, which was based on the Vanderbilts, they had earned their fortune through the railroad, and there are appearances of their architect that designed their house, and that character was Stanford White. They even called him Stanford White. As Stanford's portfolio grew, so did his fame. In 1884, he married a woman named Elizabeth Bessie Springs Smith, and they had a son named Richard, who unfortunately died in infancy in 1885. And then a second son named Lawrence was born in 1887. Just as a side note on Lawrence, because we'll never hear about him again. Okay. Okay. He later became an architect also with McKim, Mead, and White, and he found his own success as the president of the National Academy of Design. That's just the most basic description that I can give you of Stanford White's life.
0: A little bit of Francis Reddenberry-esque
1: as well. A little bit so, yeah.
2: Oh, okay.
1: The second party in this story is Evelyn Nesbitt. Evelyn was the Elizabeth Taylor of her time. Everyone knew her face. Everyone knew who she was. Everybody thought she was beautiful. She was born on Christmas Day in 1884 or 5. Some of those old records are a little bit dodgy.
2: Okay.
1: Near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Evelyn was brought up to appreciate her own curiosity and her own self-confidence. She was an avid reader. She was learned in music and dance. But her father died young. She was only eight years old when he died, and he left the family penniless. So they had to sell everything they owned to pay off his outstanding debts. So over time, they ended up sharing a single room in boarding houses where they could find lodging. And they also quite often took advantage of the kindness of friends and family who would give them shelter. Mm -hmm. So they were always very financially stressed. When in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, a female artist noticed Evelyn and was struck by her beauty, so Evelyn's mother agreed to let her pose for a painting. Over time, she became a popular subject for artists in the Philadelphia area and she began to earn a living wage through modeling. When Evelyn was only 14, her family relocated to New York City, where Mrs. Nesbitt was still unable to find work, but since her daughter was so in demand with painters and photographers, they were able to survive. Evelyn posed for many women's magazines like Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar, Ladies Home Journal, Cosmopolitan. Those are all still in existence today.
0: Was she posing for photographs for them?
1: She was. Okay. But I there were just... still a lot of ads and things that were using her image that were hand-drawn or painted.
0: I gotcha. Okay, I'm with you.
1: So her photo was showcased on dozens of commercial items as well. Mm-hmm. She was in the Prudential Insurance Calendar. She was in the Coca-Cola Calendar. And a man named Charles Dana Gibson who was well known at that time for what was called the Gibson Girls and he did a series of paintings of just lovely young ladies. Okay. She was probably the best known of the Gibson Girls. So he chose her for the model for one of his best known paintings, which was called Woman Colon, The Eternal Question in nineteen oh three. And they called it that because her hair in that drawing it's a drawing, not a painting. Her hair in the drawing resembles a question mark.
0: Okay. I thought it was just a man being like, yeah. we don't understand
1: women. They're so confused. What's wrong with them? But I'm no, sure I there was it. some of that, too. <laughs> I'm sure. It was 1903. <laughs> yeah. The photos that were being used of Evelyn from the age of 15 or 16 were... Pretty provocative. There are limitations on the types of photos that can be taken of underage girls. But if you look for images of Evelyn, you will find all kinds of seductive poses and sultry looks, even a little bit of nudity. Don't you love look that. back at no, because it was exploitation, right? Mm-hmm. I but
0: mean, it's one thing if you're drawing it, I guess. Versus photographs. You know. I, yeah, I
1: don't know how many photographs there are. But I, mm. I did find paintings that were nudes. And there were a lot of photographs of her pulling her clothing aside and showing a little bit of this and that. But she was 15. 15 and 16. So it was too young for that. Mm-hmm. For this work, she was earning about $10 for a full day's work, which is about $325 a day in modern dollars. So her mother acquiesced to letting Evelyn just support the family. There's no way that they were going to make that kind of money otherwise.
0: Yeah, but you could probably go without if your daughter is being basically Oh, honey, you ain't
1: <laughs> seen nothing yet. Oh, great. Okay. Evelyn got bored with sitting still, posing for photos or paintings. She wanted to work in theater. Remember, she was uh, educated in music and dance, and she wanted to be in the theater. Mm-hmm. She was offered a position as a chorus line dancer. Answer. due to her growing fame and her face being known everywhere she was then given a contract as a featured actress and star and she began attracting the interests of wealthy prominent men most of them were married of course mm-hmm. she was frequently offered dinners and gifts and because she was still so young she normally would turn them down she didn't want to give them any kind of claim of ownership or let them feel like she owed them anything she was willing to pose so it seems like they wanted her to be an escort, They did. essentially. Okay. They did. Before mm-hmm. long, Stanford White, we talked about him earlier, was mm-hmm. one of the wealthy and older men who noticed her. While he was 32 years older than Evelyn, he was a fairly attractive man, although he had a ridiculous mustache. It extended way below his mouth, and it stuck out about as far as cat whiskers on each side of his face. But I suppose that was the style back in the day. I mean, it's kind of back in now. Yikes. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, his <laughs> success and fame gave him another arrow in his quiver in trying to get to know Evelyn. Mm-hmm. So, in 1901, when Stanford saw Evelyn dancing in the chorus, he was immediately determined to know her and convinced another chorus girl to bring Evelyn to his apartment for a drink. Evelyn was excited. This wealthy, famous architect's interest in her was exciting, and so she decided she would go. What Evelyn didn't know about Stanford was that in addition to his excellent professional reputation, he was known to be something of a predator, and his taste in women gave him the whispered nickname of the, quote, predatory satyr, unquote, due to his desire for young girls and wild sex. And a satyr is a a mythological character that was big into partying and bacchanalia and, and wild sex and crazy wine. And he had that reputation already. Although his reputation was widespread even in this regard, his wealth and social power almost gave him an infinite supply of young girls that were hoping to benefit socially or financially from his favor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In fact, in 2018, a book was published called *The Girl in the Velvet Swing: Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century*. And this book claimed that White was part of a group of wealthy men who organized orgies that were attended by all these young girls. So it sounds to me like he was the Jeffrey Epstein I was of was his day. Say
0: that sounds exactly like Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, he was.
1: He was mm. pretty scuzzy. And I just want to point out that I find no evidence that Stanford ever divorced his wife, Bessie. But I also know that she lived until 1950, so I don't know where she is during all of this debauchery and pedophilia.
2: Perhaps she
1: lived outside of the city with her son. Yeah. Stanford seems to have a total free-for-all going on in this apartment on 24th Street. So I imagine that Bessie knew the rumors about her husband and just wanted her son away from him.
0: Well, yeah, and back in those... Days, you know, being a divorced
1: woman is not the best, right? So, she's gonna lose all her property, all her money, too. So, right, well, if you remember, Francis Rattenberry moved out and had the electricity turned on oh, on yeah. his wife. So, Gosh. these guys were not good guys. <laughs> so, again, when Evelyn agreed to visit Stanford White's apartment, even though she considered him to be terribly old, she was 16 and he was 48. Mm-hmm. She was nevertheless hopeful that they would enjoy a nice afternoon together and that he might somehow benefit her career and her social standing. She arrived, they ate some lunch together and it seems that the friend left her there. Stanford escorted Evelyn up to the second floor where he had a room entirely painted green with a red velvet swing hanging from ivy wrapped ropes in the middle of the room. I guess this was his ploy to get young girls to his apartment. I
0: mean if we take out the pedophile that does sound like a good time. I'm not gonna lie. Yuck.
1: He suggested that she get on the swing and he pushed her on it, swinging all around the room for hours. He was using the swing as an excuse to accidentally touch her where he couldn't if they were sitting next to each other or standing next to one another. Mm. She spent the day swinging around in the green room and then she went home. So nothing bad really happened that day except for the grooming part. Mm-hmm. So he continued grooming her over the next few months, earning her trust, getting her to think that he's harmless and he got to know her mother, who was quite impressed that White was spending time with her daughter. He was a respected professional. He was a famous man in New York City, so he also earned Mrs. Nesbitt's trust.
0: Then, girl, you go... F- Jesus. Well, <laughs> he
1: was probably older than her mom. Well, that's
0: what I'm saying. Like, if you wouldn't want to, why are you
1: pushing your 16-year-old on to? Well, maybe she did want to. I don't know. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> he formed what he called a caretaking relationship with Evelyn. Supposedly, in order to get her a good foothold in high society. So he was paying for her to go to the dentist. He moved the family from their boarding house into a hotel. He gave Evelyn an allowance of $25 a week, which was actually a lot at that time. Mm -hmm. Gave her lavish, expensive gifts. He was doing all this under the assumption, his assumption, that he was buying Evelyn. She didn't know that he was buying her because she was young and naive and Mm -hmm. he was just putting in what he thought was his dues in order to get what he wanted. Mrs. Nesbitt was being particularly naive to think all of this cash outlay came with no strings because she did seem to trust him. But she didn't trust him so much that she would allow Evelyn to go over and stay with White. But that's still what happened one weekend when Mrs. Nesbitt went out of town. Stanford convinced Evelyn to come and stay at his apartment, where they talked and drank champagne all evening long. When Evelyn awoke the next morning, she was naked in Stanford's bed, and her legs were bloody from having lost her virginity to being raped while she was unconscious.
2: Mm, Poor baby.
1: It seems likely that he put a drug in her champagne to knock her out. Evelyn was scared, and she was upset, and Stanford tried to calm her down by saying, Don't cry, kitten. It's all over. Now you belong to me. But in the aftermath of her having been violated, and in the terms of society at that time, she considered herself ruined. She stayed with him in the hopes that he would continue to take care of her. Mm -hmm. She was kind of stuck. She had no recourse. No one at that time was going to take her side, regardless of the satyr reputation that White had. It was always going to be the fault of the, quote, promiscuous vixen, even if he had drugged her to get what he wanted.
0: Well, yeah, and then it doesn't help that all those people were doing the nude photographs and stuff before to her. She's clearly the victim here, but. Yeah. Back then, people would be like, well, why are you posing naked if you weren't going to be a whore? You know? Exactly.
1: Exactly. So there was no way she was going to be the person who people sided with yeah. against the famous rich architect so evelyn just tried to continue with her life continue to develop her acting skills in her career she went on acting and dancing in the chorus line she continued to draw the attention of the same men who had always noticed her and then along came another wealthy socialite who wanted evelyn harry kendall thaw was an heir to a multi-million dollar railroad fortune was a wild partier, a heavy drinker, constantly in the company of sex workers, and had a pretty deep speedball habit. And for those who aren't familiar, a speedball is a combination of cocaine and heroin, and he was always shooting up either that or morphine. Harry had attended Harvard until he was expelled for chasing a cab driver through the streets of Cambridge with a shotgun. Man,
0: this guy sounds like hit or miss. miss. Yeah. Like, either
1: you're gonna have the best night of your life with him or the worst. There's no in between. I'm guessing the second one. (laughs) He had been known his whole life to be just extremely spoiled, very coddled, always had everything he could ever want, and he had a really wild temper.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Harry amused himself after being expelled from Harvard by going to Broadway shows just continuously. He called attending these shows studying. And he just bounced through life in a drug haze and lived lavishly off his father's money. Harry felt entitled to anything he wanted because of his massive wealth and had been basically chasing the same group of young girls as Stanford White was chasing. And when he was snubbed by a group of these young ladies, he attributed that to rude remarks that had been made to the girls by Stanford White. So Harry had a bone to pick with Stanford. When Harry heard the rumors about Stanford and Evelyn, Harry decided he was going to steal Evelyn away from Stanford. Harry anonymously sent a series of lavish gifts to Evelyn, and then secretly set up a meeting at a party so that he could admit to having sent all of these lavish gifts to Evelyn so that he could win her over. Mm -hmm. How old is he? He is about 10 years older than Evelyn. So he's in his late 20s about now. Okay. Stanford found out about the gifts and he sent Evelyn to live at a boarding school to get her away from Harry Thaw. After a short time at the boarding school, Evelyn came down with a bout of appendicitis and she had to go to the hospital. Don't know why they didn't just take her appendix out. This was the turn of the 20th century, not the turn of the 19th. So she's at the hospital and Harry found out where she was and since he had a captive audience there, he took every opportunity to come up there and visit, bring gifts, get to Know mrs nesbitt and to bestow endless flattery upon evelyn during his visits stanford then had evelyn transferred to a private medical facility in upstate new york but harry would just visit whenever stanford wasn't visiting harry had all the time in the world and stanford still had a job to do so they're
0: literally Taking a human being and playing keep away with her
1: That's exactly what they're doing. Yes, childish. Very childish yes, this is all ego driven <laughs> all of its ego men. Stanford was starting to lose interest in Evelyn you know because she's becoming work now and the what, what fun is that mm-hmm. But Harry was not losing interest in Evelyn. He just wanted to win this game. So as soon as she was released from the medical facility, He invited her and her mother to Paris on his dime, and he spent a huge amount of money trying to impress the two women. During the trip, he proposed to Evelyn, but she was not sure that she wanted that. Harry pressed on. He wanted to know why she wouldn't agree to marry him, and she felt she owed him an explanation. Mm -hmm. Because she was accepting this trip, but she eventually told him she felt unworthy to be Harry's wife because she had been raped by Stanford and she wasn't a virgin. Mm-hmm. Harry was enraged that Stanford had polluted his intended, but this was mostly jealousy more than any concern about what had actually happened to Evelyn. Harry was mad about his pride being soiled, not hers. So then he sent Mrs. Nesbit back to the United States. He took Evelyn to a remote castle in Germany. And when he got there, he forced himself upon her. And then he beat her repeatedly with a dog whip so that he could exert his ownership over her. He's furious, like it's her fault that she was raped by Stanford White, so now he's going to punish her by raping her himself. Let me go ahead and
0: re-victimize you on the trauma you've already suffered.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what happened. So now she's been raped by two nasty men who just hated one another, and she was in the middle of their Mm tug-of-war. Evelyn was now fully under Harry's control. She really had no options in her time and she was also afraid of him and his terrible temper. He was monstrous, but Evelyn gave in when Harry's mother requested that she marry Harry to help settle him down. So Evelyn married Harry Thaw at a private ceremony in 1905, and as soon as she did, his obsession with her fizzled. He didn't really want to marry her, he just didn't want Stanford White to have her. He had simply wanted to own her, lock her up, and show Stanford White who had won. So after the marriage, Harry tended to travel around without Evelyn quite a bit. In 1906, Harry and Evelyn were back together in New York and they went to lunch on June the 25th at an upscale cafe. Stanford White also happened to be having lunch at the bar at the same cafe at the same time. Evelyn noticed Stanford there and as she went to tell Harry that Stanford was in the cafe, because she didn't want him to find out first, Mm -hmm. she turned around again and then Stanford was gone. Shortly after this, Harry produced some tickets for later that evening to attend Mamselle Champagne, which was a Broadway show. It was certainly no coincidence that Stanford White also was planning to attend the same show. Harry had found out about Stanford's plans and quickly arranged for Evelyn and himself to go because he's a millionaire. He can get anything he wants.
0: Waver in front of him.
1: So this show was being performed in the open-air rooftop theater that was part of Madison Square Garden. And remember, this was the second iteration of Madison Square Garden that Stanford White himself had designed in 1890 during his biggest design years.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: This wasn't the version of Madison Square Garden that's there today, but many considered this building to be his masterwork. And so for him to attend shows there made him kind of the big man on campus, Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a big deal. The Thaws finished their lunch, and Harry took Evelyn back and dropped her off at their hotel. Then he disappeared until it was time for him to pick her back up and head to see the show. It was late June, so it was a very warm evening, but when Harry arrived to pick up Evelyn, he was dressed for the evening but was also wearing a long black overcoat. The hat check attendant tried to check the coat, but Harry wouldn't part with it. The Thaws were seated at their table, and while Evelyn sat at their table watching the show, Harry immediately left the table and was darting around several times he gravitated towards stanford white's table but each time he would back away when the final song of the show began ironically it was called i could love a million girls The song started playing harry bobbed back over to stanford white's table pulled a gun out of his overcoat and shot stanford three times from less than two feet away mm. some sources said that he was shot three times in the face and others say he was hit in the back of the head as well as in the shoulder regardless Stanford fell to the ground while Harry stood over him victoriously, having murdered the famous architect in his most famous building. The crowd at first thought there was a prank being pulled because elaborate pranks were pretty popular at that time, and sometimes they were even orchestrated as part of Broadway shows. Mm -hmm. But the gore from the half of Stanford's face that was now missing soon convinced them this was for real. Yeah, I don't think that's a prop, guys. No. Harry was said to have yelled, I did it because he ruined my wife! He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then deserted her. As and if she he really herself. cared about her welfare. Yeah, you did the exact same fucking thing, dude. Yes, he did. You also deserve to be on that floor. Yes. Yeah, so he <sighs> just held the gun up in the air, walked quickly through the crowd, and met up with Evelyn near the elevator. She saw the gun, knew something was happening, and she asked what he had done. Now, I don't know if she had heard the gunshots, but I don't know how she wouldn't have heard them. Mm-hmm. It's not like they were two miles apart, you know? yeah. Harry told Evelyn he'd probably just save her life. And I don't think he meant that Stanford White would have ever killed Evelyn. I think Harry was so possessive and pathologically jealous that he couldn't stand the two of them being alive. Mm
2: -hmm. One of them
1: had to be dead in Harry's mind. So if he hadn't killed Stanford, Harry would have had to kill Evelyn for his own ego's sake. The thought of the two of them was like a worm in his brain, Mm -hmm. you know? So Harry was arrested the same day. There were two trials the first of which ended on a hung jury two years later in the second trial evelyn was more or less bribed by mrs thaw harry's mother to testify about how stanford had mistreated and abused her and mrs thaw told her that if she did this she would be rewarded with a divorce from harry and one million dollars in compensation so evelyn did testify about all the things that had happened to her of course she left out the parts about Harry raping her in Germany. She convinced the jury that Harry had been insane with grief and jealousy at the time of the murder. And in 1908, Harry was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Society's men identified with Harry. He was something of a folk hero to these guys who feared cuckoldry more than pretty much anything else. Mm -hmm. They would rather be dead than cuckolded.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He was heralded amongst this group as having done it for the sake of wife and home, without any mention of how Harry himself had forced himself on Evelyn. He'd killed Stanford for the same behavior that he had committed, which is what you said a minute ago. Harry was sent to what is now a Fishkill correctional facility, but what was then known as Mateawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane mm-hmm. until 1913, when due to his nearly total freedom to do whatever he wanted in this place, he simply left the facility and ran to Quebec. He went to Canada? He went to Canada. That's just what Canada needs is more psychos. Yeah just what they need. His life in this place was pretty plum. He was sitting down at a tablecloth table every day having five course meals served to him. He had a full-sized bed brought into him. He could move around in there. He could pretty much come and go as he pleased but he couldn't have his speed balls and his little trysts that he was used to so he just walked out and ran
2: to Canada.
0: I wonder do you think the drugs had a big portion to do with his decision that day to kill Stanford? Do you Possibly. think he was just really high and was too proud afterwards to be
1: like yo
0: I didn't mean to kill that dude but whoops I got a little bit I carried think, away with that
1: I think he always intended to kill him okay well, yeah the checks. United States had him extradited back to New York where he was found to be sane two years later Mm-hmm. But Harry was a sadistic and self centered jackass. And in 1917, he was again found not guilty by reason of insanity for sexually assaulting and horsewhipping a teenage boy. Harry then spent seven years in a different asylum and was released in 1924. Evelyn did get her divorce from Harry, but the family never ponied up the $1 million she was promised for helping to get him out from under the murder charge. When Harry died in Florida in 1947 at the age of 76, he left a token $10,000 to Evelyn, which amounted to less than 1% of his net worth. Stanford White's great-granddaughter, Susanna Lassard, wrote a book about her great-grandfather entitled The Architect of Desire, which was a tell-all about the way her great-grandfather exploited young women, girls, some of them barely pubescent, and how he took advantage of women who were financially fragile and who were commodified because of his money. She also discusses the ongoing culture within her own family that she said put all children in a place of sexual danger. She says the incest and debauchery have run like a genetic defect within her family. That for descendants of Stanford White, sexual violation was a condition of life. So in this Architect Mayhem, both the perpetrator and the murder victim were absolute trash. Mm -hmm. Stanford White may have designed amazing buildings, but underneath his society facade was a disgusting predator. And basically a human trafficker, Mm -hmm. even though they didn't use that terminology back then. Harry Thaw was a rich, entitled monster who thought he owned the world because of his inheritance. And he was just as much of a rapist as Stanford White was. Mm -hmm. The only person in this story who wasn't horrible was Evelyn Nesbitt. After all the scandals that rocketed her to fame, or infamy, after all the exploitation and abuse that she endured during her life. After her divorce in 1915, she had married her dancing partner in 1916, but that didn't work out and they were divorced two years later. By 1919, Evelyn's movie and stage career were diminishing. She was becoming wearisome to the public. They were just tired of seeing her in the newspaper all the time. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: For a few months in 1921, she ran a little tea room, but it was unsuccessful, and that closed down. She had a son, but she did not name the child's father. She was just looking for someone to love her. She published her memoirs in 1937, tried to come back in cabarets in New York and New Jersey, but no one wanted to see her perform anymore. She twice, unfortunately, attempted to take her own life because the world was just hostile towards her. She was unable to make a decent living until in 1955 when she moved to Los Angeles so that she could become a consultant for the movie about her story, Mm -hmm. which was called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, starring a young Joan Collins. She lived a quiet life and she became an artist. She taught ceramics. She stayed in a hotel in Los Angeles and later in a recovery home in Santa Monica. She died in 1967 at the age of 82. Wow. Only a few people attended her funeral because most of the world had just forgotten about her. Mm-hmm. This woman, who was good hearted and kind and talented, had once been considered the most beautiful woman in the world, had her entire life stolen from her by two predators who cared more about possessing her and acting out their rivalry than they did about her as a person. Evelyn was once quoted as saying, Stanley White was killed, but my fate was worse. I lived. Mm-hmm. She spent her whole lonely life atoning for the depravities of others who victimized her. Again, I'm sorry for not being uplifting. But in this story, two bad people just did a lot of bad things to a good person mm-hmm. who had no power to fight back. She seemed like she just wanted to live her life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and It's horrible that she started out doing all
0: of this to help her family. It's not like, oh, I want to be a star. It right. seems like...
2: Right. She's like,
1: like, how can I make more money to give my family a better life? And then it just all snowballed from there. And her mom made some bad decisions, but she was naive too. You know, she was a single mom trying to support two kids, trying to make their way in a world that was not supportive of single parents, Mm -hmm. or at least not single women. And
0: I get it. Your daughter's 16 at that time. They might as well be 25. True.
1: Because she could have gotten married at that age. So if she wants to do it, I wish that things had turned out differently for her. See,
0: I feel like I've heard Stanford's name before. I don't think I've
1: ever heard Evelyn's. Oh, really?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: Evelyn Nesbitt was very, very famous. When she was teaching her ceramics classes, she said that people would come in and the younger people who came in wouldn't know who she was they Mm -hmm. had no idea who evelyn nesbitt was but at that time she said their grandmothers would sometimes come in with them the grandmothers would sit and talk to her about her life experiences because they remembered when it happened
0: to make that story kind of happy i was fully expecting evelyn to be the one to get murdered in this so i'm very relieved yeah it was one of the two assholes that were predatory.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's so. why I don't feel bad about either of them having bad things happen mm-hmm. to them because they were both just genuinely bad people. Yeah. That's that. Guys, thank you for being here today. I'd like to ask you to please go and rate and review us on Apple. It also would help us a lot if you could give us a five-star rating on Spotify or go to Good Pods and you can rate and you can give individual episode reviews there. Hopefully it will be a good one. Come and find us and follow us on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter at True Crime b You can follow Puss at True Crime b Puss on Instagram. And you can send us an email Feel free to also
0: shoot us an email at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. Yes,
1: and I think that's wrapping it up. Yep,
0: until next time, y'all. Thanks, crime family.
1: We're always glad you're here. Bye. Bye. Not as scary as her.
0: Oh, welcome. Hello. That was an awkward start. La L'obolia? Lobelia? Lobolia. L-O-B-E-L-I-A. Lobelia. Yeah. Lobelia? Oh, that's better. That's a flower. That's a cuter. Uh, yeah.
1: Ha, it's better than Lobelia. Lobelia. <laughs> <It> sounds like an <laughs> <a> infectious <laughs> disease. <laughs> uh, oh my God, I'm bleeding from my
0: eyes. It's Lobelia.
1: <laughs> I'm
0: not even past the first bulletin point yet.
1: Okay. <laughs> you know it's just bullet point, not bulletin point. What? It's bullet point. I noticed in the last episode that I listened to that you were saying bulletin point and it's bullet point. I have always said bulletin point. <laughs> no, it's bullet point. Okay.
0: <laughs> I think Bailey
1: needs to go back to bed
0: <laughs> and school.
1: Wow, what a piece of crap.
0: Pay us and we'll do something you want.
1: <clears throat> that was Stanford White.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was going
1: to say, that's a cool name. <laughs> Born November the 8th, that's a lie. Stanford White was... Since formal education was not required at the time...
0: But I don't want to decapitate
1: you. Crazy wine, and that's what. So, ends. us. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, again, when Evelyn agreed to visit Stanford's wife, apart Stanford's wife, <laughs> she okay. probably would have had better results from that. Yeah, seriously. And then, long came another. Well, see. And then, in long. Holy fuck. <laughs> Yikes. Here, eat those and shut up. Okay. I had that dream the other night Mm -hmm. that we were quitting the podcast. We are not quitting the podcast. Unless we're in the dream right now and we already quit the podcast
0: in real life.
1: Oh my God, that's...
0: We can be found anywhere you listen to (laughs) podcasts. You're already (laughs) listening to the podcast.
1: Why did they say that? (laughs) Okay. Puss, I'm trying to get through the last ten words. Will you just
2: knock it off long enough for me to finish this? Jeez. She's a saboteur is what she is. (laughs)